You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We continue reflecting together on what it means to be the church. To do this, we've been looking more closely at a quick snapshot found in Acts chapter 2 of the early life and witness of the church immediately after its birth by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, the specific passage we've been looking at is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and it reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Now, previously, we've considered what are known as the four pillars of being the church, as found in this passage. Number one, maturing as the body of Christ through being grounded in the apostles' teaching or scripture. Number two, being in fellowship or koinonia together, celebrating the diversity within the body while remaining united in Jesus. Number three, breaking bread together, coming to the table set by Christ, and then proclaiming Christ by practicing the same kind of inclusive hospitality Jesus modeled for us by inviting others to sit and eat at our tables. Number four, cultivating both an individual and a communal life of prayer, a regular ongoing conversation with God through the word and by the Holy Spirit. Today, we're focusing on something else we see in this picture from Acts chapter 2. Something we cannot ignore, despite how uncomfortable it makes us, and despite how sometimes controversial it still remains within the church today. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, it's this single verse. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as anyone had a need. This image of communal living and shared ownership has given rise to the emergence of monasteries and convents both in the Middle Ages and more recently in the new monastic order of this millennium. This description that we find in Acts 2 has also sparked debate as to whether socialism and the mandatory redistribution of possessions are in fact Christian ideals. And in case we're we're tempted to write off such a debate by arguing it's just one verse, it's a single moment in the life of the early church, it's not a normative pattern for the body of Christ, surprise, surprise, we see this picture here in Acts chapter 2 pop up yet again only two chapters later in Acts chapter 4. Let's listen to how that passage echoes and even expands on what we've already seen. Here's Acts chapter 4. Good morning. Today's reading comes from the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. 
with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's hear from Pastor Chris. Today, as we look at this stunning passage, we are going to clarify exactly what was happening here and what wasn't. At the same time, we're going to wrestle with a model of stewardship and of generosity that is going to challenge us deeply about what is ours, what we really need, how do we share, and what is our responsibility to others in the community, the community within the church and the community outside the church, our neighborhood. So let's begin with this. What exactly is going on here? Well, in Acts chapter four, just like in Acts chapter two, we see followers of Jesus who are deeply united with each other, bound together, we're told, in heart and mind by their submission to and witness for Christ. No one within this community of faith is claiming anything as belonging to themselves. Everything is being held in common. They shared everything they had with each other, we're told. And notice, if you go back and look at this passage, how this posture of generosity is related to the power of their witness for the gospel and the kingdom. It's recorded, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that what resulted? There were no needy persons among them. Take that in for a second. This embodiment of grace, this posture of generosity, extended beyond the community itself to the wider neighborhood. And we see this in the mention of church members liquidating their assets in order for the money from those sales to be used to help anyone in need. And what is spoken of here in general terms is wrapped up with a very specific and compelling example as we hear about someone named Joseph, also known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas, who will later become a key leader in the church. Barnabas, who will later become a missionary partner with Paul. Barnabas sells property that he had and puts the proceeds at the feet of the community. And if we were to keep reading, going on to chapter 5, we didn't, but if we did, we'd see this picture rounded out by Barnabas's action contrasted with the wrong and therefore cautionary example of another group, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who were members of the church. This husband and the wife and wife claimed to be offering all they had, but actually were being deceitful, giving only part of their possessions and keeping the rest for themselves. And in chapter 5, once their duplicity is revealed, one after the other, they both literally drop dead on the spot. Yikes. So in summary, what we see here is an expression of a sense of communal ownership, as well as the mutual responsibility of the community to care not only for its own, but also with those in need in the wider neighborhood. And all this is presented for us more than just the expression of some fanciful, aspirational ideal. It is documented as a matter of history, as a very practical description of what it means to be the church. Now, we still may view this scene as somehow radical and outlandish, but I have a news flash for all of us. There's actually nothing new going on here in Acts chapter two or Acts chapter four. This repeated picture from the book of Acts is in fact a throwback to the past 
rather than some innovation of the moment. Beloved, what we see here goes way back. Sadly, throughout most of history, like much of today, poverty has defined the human experience. Most people have always lived at or below subsistence level. They barely have enough to feed and clothe themselves and their families. But from the very beginning, God recognized this as being wrong, not the way things were supposed to be, not how the Lord created life to work. And so the Lord, in starting a nation called Israel, gave the Israelites specific instructions to address this problem. God's instructions to Israel were recorded in what is known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible authored by Moses. And in the Torah, its most basic principle, later quoted by Jesus in fact, that was to guide Israel in this way was love for one's neighbor. This expression of love was to be demonstrated through one's willingness to give generously to those in need. God explicitly told Israel, these are words right out of Deuteronomy, I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. In fact, the Lord outlined very practical and tangible ways for the Israelites to share with those in need. Being a culture built around farming, the Israelites were instructed to be generous and always leaving something behind from the harvest of their fields, their grapevines, and olive trees to leave it behind for those who were poor and hungry. This was known as the practice of gleaning, and it was a provision for those who were in need. Another example of God fostering a posture of generosity among the Israelites was giving everyone permission to pluck grapes or heads of wheat and to eat them as they walked through their neighbor's vineyards and fields. An important caveat of this provision, however, was that while a person could eat from their neighbor's vineyard or field while passing through, they were not allowed to carry out a stockpile of produce, to take any grapes or wheat with them as they left. The point is, from the start, God's plan was for Israel to become a community based on values radically different than the way the rest of the world lived. For the rest of the world, poverty and lack were simply a way of life. But God wanted Israel to be a nation in which there was no poverty, where no one was lacking what he or she needed. God generously blessed Israel with an abundance of resources for Israel to go and do likewise. In Israel, love for neighbors expressed by generosity and a willing, willingness to share from one's own personal resources would provide a remedy for need and for lack. Israel lived this way together, then Israel would become a light to the nations, both modeling and providing a way of living through which all were provided for and taken care of, in which there would be no one left in need. In the birth of the church by the Holy Spirit, what we witness here in Acts is nothing more than the renewal of this long-standing divine vision for humanity. The first Christians, let us remember, were Jews, Jews who came to believe the gospel as people of the book, of the Torah, who confessed Christ as the word made flesh, they recognized that to follow Jesus was to live according to God's character and priorities, including helping and serving those in need. Having identified this foundation, let's be clear about what we don't see in this picture. Now, what we don't see here is any coercion. Those who gave did so freely, willingly, the apostles did not demand or require them to give. These men and women did not sell their possessions in order to meet the needs of others due to the threat of some penalty or enforced mandate or taxation by the government. They did so because they were of one heart 
and mind. Together they were single-minded in their heart's desire out of the grace they had received first from God to share all they had been given for the sake of spreading that grace into the lives of others, especially those who lacked the basic necessities of life. Their generosity was freely chosen and therefore joyfully expressed. And this is to be the defining characteristic of all our giving and sharing with others. The Apostle Paul famously summarized this biblical principle in this way in his second letter to the Corinthians when he wrote, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. My friends, generosity is not intended to be a chore, but a delight. Something else we don't see here is the eradication of the ownership of property. Going all the way back to Israel again, God's instructions never call for the surrender of each person's ownership of their God-given resources. The Israelites truly owned their land and homes, their fields, their vineyards, and their olive groves. And we see the same pattern here in the book of Acts and throughout all of the New Testament. Whether, whenever Christian homes are mentioned, they're always private homes. Whether it is Simon the Tanner who lived in Jaffa, or whether we're talking about Philip, the evangelist who lived in Caesarea Maritima, or Lydia, the wealthy woman who lived in Philippi. They all owned their own homes, which they opened freely to others. And if we look carefully, in fact, even to what I referenced earlier, the tragic example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Remember that couple that pretended publicly to sell their home and to give all the proceeds to those in need, but who actually held something back for themselves? If you go and look in Acts chapter 5, notice, in fact, what they're rebuked for. Peter says about the property, listen carefully, he writes, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it, he goes on, that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see, the issue here is not that Ananias and Sapphira owned a house, or even that they kept some money from the sale for themselves. Their problem was deceitfulness, of trying to look more generous than they were actually willing to be. So what we see here in Acts is not a lack of possessions, but what we see is a difference in attitude towards possessions. The first followers of Jesus had possessions, they just didn't regard them as their own. They did not view their possessions as resources to be used solely for their own good. Instead, they saw everything they possessed as having been given to them by God. Not just to take care of their own needs, but given by God to help meet the needs of others. What I have, they thought, is not mine alone to just support me and my family. No, the first followers of Jesus realized nothing is mine. All is grace, and therefore what I have is mine to share, to extend God's grace to others, especially those who need it. My friends, do we as followers of Jesus view our possessions in this same way? Because what, while what we see here is not a socialist or communist state, where the distribution of resources is compelled at times by force, what we do see here is part of what it means to be the church. There is no getting around the reality that these verses are part of a consistent biblical picture that calls us in following Jesus to radical generosity, self-sacrifice, and concern for the well-being of others and not just ourselves. What we see here challenges us to wrestle with very practical questions. Do I believe whatever I have is mine? I earned it. I deserve it. And therefore, I can just keep it, spend it, 
consume it, all of it, most of it on myself? Or do I understand that whatever I have has been given to me by God? Do I recognize this is the whole reason why God gives us anything at all? Not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because we are loved by a God who is generous, who gives us everything we need, everything we need, not just to take care of ourselves, everything we need more than enough so we can share and spread the love, his love, his grace, his provision to others. My friends, this decisive shift in our perspective, in our attitude, in our posture, in how we exercise our resources is not something we can will on our own for ourselves or will for others. No government, no law, no political or economic policy can change the human heart and mind. And that's because the gift, the resource, the transformative power of grace is the exclusive work of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the Lord alone who gives us everything we need to become together who we were meant to be. And that includes becoming generous, sharing as caring, and caring for each other so that there would be none in need among us. Oh, I know, many in the church will persist in arguing this is idealistic rather than a realistic probability. They will say this even as they forget that with God, nothing is impossible. Oh, many in the church will push back insisting there's not enough, there's just not enough to go around, even as they forget or choose not to believe Jesus when he assures us, he promises us that our Father can and will provide all that we need. Not all that we want, not all that we want out of our sense of individualism, materialism, and affluence, but that God will provide everything we need. And we already have everything we need. We have our Father's most precious possession, His own Son, given to free us from guilt and shame, fear and failure, even death itself. We have the Spirit of the Lord within us, the presence and power of our Creator, working to change our hearts and minds, to bring us together, to deepen our faith, to enable us to love, and yes, to become radically generous in how we serve each other. My friends, I know I keep repeating this, but in the midst of a global pandemic where there are many isolated and cut off from others, where some are exhausted and afraid right now, where still others have lost their means of income and maybe even a place to live, where is the Lord calling us, you and me, to be generous, to share from what we have been given? As our brothers and sisters of color continue to cry out for justice and reform, and even as those cries speak of needs, not wants, needs related to equal access to healthcare and education, as well as equal treatment before the Lord, where is the Lord calling us, you and me, to be generous, not to argue and to debate, but to share from our privilege, to be generous in our willingness, not only to listen, but to actually provide resources for change. Because my friends, one of the signs that we are being the church, that we are living by grace, by the spirit, out of everything God provides to us, one of those signs is not just our love, but our generosity toward one another increases. It increases. Let us then, by the grace of God, become a people who own things, but who live together as though we didn't. Let us, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, instead of focusing on how to hold on to what we have, let us become more compelled to see how much we can give away. 
Let us follow Jesus in being willing to sacrifice, not just out of our surplus, but out of whatever we've been given, even our very lives, for the sake of another's need, to manifest grace in an otherwise graceless world. Because this, my friends, is what it means to be the church. So let's be the church. Let's be generous.